All right. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, so if you want to kind of get the context of this, then take a look at our previous Bible studies in, I, I said 1 Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians. Um, <laughs> yeah, it took us like almost a year to do 1 Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians now. Um but uh, this is a really up to this point is a very personal letter. The Apostle Paul has had tremendous difficulties with this church. And it is possible, maybe even probable, that the Apostle Paul is responding to a previous situation in the Corinthian church where he had essentially, without even being there, excommunicated a man from the church because the man was sleeping with his um, stepmother, which I don't even know if that seems disgusting in our era. Um, but even in Rome where sexual mores were rather lax, uh, that would have been considered out of bounds and the church was, was accepting of it. So there was a lot of drama surrounding that. And apparently, uh, the apostle Paul wrote a harsh letter after he wrote first Corinthians and then he visited, and it was a difficult visit. Um, he was probably, from the context we see in this letter in Second Corinthians, he was probably um, disrespected by uh, a number of people. He was being opposed by some other teachers who were coming in trying to teach that if you're going to really be a Christian, then you need to be a, uh, a convert to Judaism first, including if you're a male being circumcised. So there were all of these challenges, right? And the Apostle Paul uh, comes back to them with this letter and he just goes over all of the details. He commends them because apparently this person has repented. He says that they should comfort that person. But he continues to, um, to warn them and to let them know that uh, he wants them to be what Christ wants them to be, um, not what the culture that was surrounding them wants them to be. Okay, So there's a transition between... Uh, practical matters regarding the church and theological matters. And I'm not trying to say that theology is not practical, but um, the practical matters were related directly to Corinth, whereas the theological matters can be related to us as well, right? So I'm going to back up to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, so that I can kind of get us into the context here tonight. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. And I, I went in detail and showed you where these places were. So Troas is on one side of the Aegean. Macedonia is a region. Troas is a city. Macedonia is a region on the other side. The churches the Apostle Paul had started there that we know of are Thessalonica and Philippi. That's in Macedonia. Macedonia, and then south of Macedonia is Achaia, and that's where Corinth is. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And by the way, I'm reading from the New International Version here. Um, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? So I try to remind you uh, of um, the triumphal train was what happened in Rome when the Roman army would conquer a particular group of people and they would make this, uh, this parade, this triumphal parade, and they would put uh, the people that they had conquered in the parade and uh, they burned incense. It was very strong incense. So you can imagine at the end of the parade, they would kill some of those people. They would sacrifice them okay, to the Roman gods, essentially. So you can imagine for those people, that smell was the smell of death. Okay? But to the Romans who saw it as a, a parade of victory, then that smell was the smell of uh, life and victory, right? To the, you know, the continual uh, expansion of the Roman Empire and so forth. And the example that, I've, you know, that I think of is um, the smell of certain flowers, particularly roses. Roses are often uh, used at funerals. And so um, Rowlett Florist is next to Intrinsic down here on the, uh, well, it's along what is uh, State Street, although State Street is torn up right now. But they'll have the doors open sometimes to Rowlett Florist, and I'll walk by, and it immediately smells like a funeral to me. Because I've officiated a lot of funerals, right? And I've been to plenty of funerals. I'm sure those of you that are watching have been to funerals. And it's that smell and it is automatically the association of death, right? So this is why when you represent Jesus, you know, that's life. There's no question about it. But for some people, it's, it's like religion to them. And so it doesn't, um, the association, what you're saying when you're, when you're preaching the gospel and so forth may not be what they're hearing, right? Um, the connotation to them may not be good. Let's go to chapter three, verse one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need like some people letters of recommendation to you or from you? So apparently there were uh, these teachers that were coming in and they had letters of recommendation that were coming from notable uh, uh, religious figures, perhaps some of the apostles in Jerusalem. You yourselves, the Apostle Paul says, are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So there's two ways of looking at this. The letter, we think of a letter as being the actual physical copy, right, of what is written. Um, but I think in our uh, era of uh, virtual everything, we can realize that the letter is not the physical copy, okay? So when the Apostle Paul was writing a letter, there was an amanuensis, which is to say a secretary, that was writing down what the Apostle Paul was saying. He was preaching, right? So it would be like somebody sitting in this room right now and writing down what I'm saying, and then it becomes a letter. Well, no, the letter is what I'm saying, Okay? It just happens to be written down on parchment or in this case, uh, you know, typed into uh, a digital means and, you know, you can post it on WordPress or on Facebook or, you know, whatever. But the reality is the letter is that uh, is the message, right? 
And so the Apostle Paul is, says the letter is, is written on our hearts. So he's saying when we go around to different places, you are the letter written on our hearts. People can see that we have um, preached to you and that we have seen uh, a change in your lives and that we love you. And then the letter is also written on their hearts. The Apostle Paul, you know, spoke that letter, wrote that letter, was written on their hearts. So he's saying there doesn't need to be some uh, formal letter that is written to recommend us. What we've done and said already recommends us, right? So, you know, I've been the pastor here uh, for 23 years now, and I don't need a letter of recommendation, all right? I've been in Garland as of November of this year, November 15th of this year, I will have been in Garland for 30 years. And prior to that, I was in the colony for four and a half years. And so I've only been involved with three churches in that time period. Okay. But the people that I've preached to and the message that I've preached, that's my letter of recommendation. I don't need a letter of recommendation. You're the letter of recommendation. So review what you've been taught because I'm not going back on any of that. I'm not changing. I'm not apologizing, right? The truth is the truth. And I've preached the gospel for a long time and I'm going to stand before God in judgment for that. And you know what? I'm happy. I'm happy to do that because I've never told you a lie. Not that I know of, right? So that's the apostle Paul. What he's saying to these people 2 Corinthians 3, 4, such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves or sufficient in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So that last phrase is what we talked about a lot uh, in the previous study. The difference between the Old Testament right? The covenant that was written on stone, letters, legalism, rules, religion, and the covenant of the spirit. So the spirit is who comes and convinces you that the message is true and draws you to God. I, you know, I said it on Sunday morning uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I can't convince you of anything. I don't want to be the source of persuasion. I want to be a conduit of the spirit and I want the spirit to convince you and the spirit to draw you and not draw you to me, but draw you to Christ and draw you into the word, right? Verse seven. Now, if the ministry that brought death, that's the old covenant, which was engraved in letters on stone came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the spirit, that's the new covenant, be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, that's the law. The law doesn't justify anybody, the apostle Paul said. The law shows you where you're going wrong. And when you violate the law, there is a penalty. Okay. And the penalty is death for the majority of the, those violations. Okay. Um, so if that, uh, that uh, covenant 
that was written on stone came with glory. So the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory, transitory though it was. Verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? The new covenant brings us justification. The new covenant is based on grace. The new covenant puts us right with God, right? The new covenant puts you in the position so that you can have a relationship with God for eternity. Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now, that is the old covenant, in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory, that means what's passing away, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts, once again, the new covenant? Verse 12, this is where we are this week, by the way. I'm going to read 12 to the end of the chapter, and my hope is we'll finish that tonight. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only Christ, excuse me, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, um, Moses would spend time with God. God would give him the law. He would come down and he would relate that to the Israelites. His face literally glowed. And it was, it put them in awe. It convicted them, right? The holiness of God was on Moses' face and it convicted them, right? Because they knew that they were in the wrong with God. Listen, anytime anybody gets in the presence of God, it drives them to their knees. If you think you can stand up and, and shake your bony fist at God and stick your chest out, right, and have a forehead of bronze before Almighty God, you're wrong. You're not in the presence of God. When people get in the presence of God, it's deeply convicting. We are convinced of our guilt. So Moses, after he would speak to them, would put a veil over his face, so there's two things that that did. Number one, it kept them from being continually convicted of their shortcomings, right? Of their sin. It was a way of giving them a break. So what my hope is when I preach is that the Holy Spirit will convince you of where you need to change. And then you'll go out free of me, free of the message I've just preached, but remembering it and you will respond accordingly. Okay. I don't chase you around and follow you around and tell you what to do. Now, you know, I'm not Moses. I'm just trying to help you understand what this may mean. Okay. You need the freedom to make your own decision. God gives you that break. He may, he may press in on you and really convince you of your need to change. And I hope he does. Because if he doesn't, that's troublesome, okay? If God's not convicting you, that's, that's really troublesome. You should be more worried about that than if you do feel guilty, okay? But then you have the freedom to go and do what you do. Um, an idea comes into my mind for an example. Uh, 
Pastor Craig, who also helps me with karate, was sharing a story about his school yesterday when we were, yesterday's our karate day. And um, he said the football players at his school are phenomenal. They had their first football game, I guess Monday, and they beat this other team 40 to zero. And uh, Craig was at that. He's the associate assistant principal there, one of them. And uh, he was at that game and the coach asked him if he wanted to say anything to the players. And Craig said, man, this is, you guys are phenomenal. You just, you really need to make sure, you know, that you, you do what you're supposed to do, right? They, they don't need to get in trouble. They, their grades need to stay up so they can stay on that team and keep playing. And then Craig said, and, you know, the next day, which was yesterday, uh, he got a video where six kids were beating up on one kid and these football players were all there. Not paying attention. Here is this phenomenal opportunity, but they're just going to fall right back into the world. Well, it's the same thing when you hear the word of God. You come to church, do you just go out and live the way you live? Right? Is it just make no difference? So that veil that Moses put over his face was intended as a way to say, okay, now go do what you're supposed to do. I'm not here with the glory of God shining off of my face, constantly driving you down and convincing you. You've got to make up your mind. God gives you freedom to choose. He gives you a break. He backs off. If God was on you, on you, on you all the time, man, you're not free anymore. Okay? But realize, heaven is, God is on you, on you, on you all the time. You understand that? You think heaven's going to just be this wonderful, glorious thing? If you don't like God being on you, on you, on you, you're going to hate heaven. Because God is the light that's there. He's the glory that's there. You don't ever escape him. Now, there's the veil. The other thing, and this is really the primary uh, idea that... um, I think Paul is trying to get across is Moses is a frail human being and the glory faded. He didn't want them to lose respect for him because the longer he was apart from God, the more that glow faded. And then they could say, oh, you know what? We don't need to listen to you. Look at that. So he put the veil over his face so they wouldn't see that the glory was fading. But the Apostle Paul says the New Testament, the New Covenant is different. The glory doesn't fade, it increases, right? When the Spirit fills you, then you are constantly renewed and that glory is continually uh, uh, made bright. And I gave you the example last week of the, the radium dial watch with the the radiation that continues to make that material glow because Moses's face was like standard luminescent material. When you expose it to light and then turn the lights off, it glows. But what happens after a while? Stops glowing. Okay. But with a radium dial watch, they put a little bit of radioactive material, not realizing how dangerous this is, And it continuously made it glow. Like you could buy a radium dial watch today and it would be still glowing. In fact, if it's not glowing, it's not the fault of the radium, 
right? Because the half-life of ra you know, radioactive material is really, really long. It's the fault of the luminescent material that is worn out because the, the radiation is saying, glow, 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 glow. And the luminescent material is like, I've glowed all I can. I can't glow anymore, okay? But with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, man, I mean, I'm sure you've been around people like that. They just seem to glow, right? They're constantly in the presence of God because the Spirit is living within them. That's the kind of relationship that we have. That's the kind of covenant that we have, okay? The other thing that this idea of the veil uh, presents to us is uh, the, uh, the idea of separation, that the Israelites were separated from Moses, the giver of the law, okay? And the Apostle Paul is saying, you are separated, from, and you know, those that are unbelieving are still separated from uh, the word of God to this day. It is your unbelief that is the veil. It's keeping you from understanding the word of God. So, if you're confused, if you're unfocused, if you're fuzzy, right? Last week I gave the idea of the white noise. It's just that <laughs> going on. That's unbelief. Every time the word of God is preached, you are given the opportunity to believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Whatever it is that you hear at the moment, choose to grab a hold of it with faith. You may not understand everything, but just grab a hold of that little bit. Hang on to it. And then your mind will open to more and more of God's revelation. Conversely, if you're just like, well, I don't know. I've heard other things. There are other voices. There are other people saying other things. I don't know about that. You're being given an opportunity to believe every time the word of God is spoken, whether it's by me or any other teacher or preacher that is actually preaching the word. You need to choose to believe every single time you are offered that opportunity because every time you turn it down, you are given less and less and less until what you've already received in the past leaks out. And this is why it's astonishing to me. I've been doing ministry now for a long time, as I said earlier, and I have seen a number of people through the years that have just given up their faith. I've seen teenagers that were, they seemed to be very heartfelt in their relationship with Christ, right? And now I know a number of them and they're atheists. Um, there are those that I know right now that are headed that direction. Well, I, I still believe in God, but I don't know about all that stuff. Listen, man, it's a package deal. You don't get to just make it up. Do what you want to do. Okay? The word of God is what gives you that opportunity to have faith. And when you say, well, 
You know, all those things I've been taught my whole life in church. I don't know if I believe that. Why? Because the culture has changed. See, the culture used to be aligned with what we would call evangelical Christianity. Now that term has become politicized. But evangelical just means Christians who believe in the gospel, right? That Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, that if you open your heart and you receive Jesus into your heart, you're saved. That's the gospel. That's evangelical. comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news or good message. You don't get to change that because the culture has changed. Well, you know, I think abortion is acceptable. You've got these two extremes now, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. You've got states that are trying to pass laws to protect preborn children. Um, oh, what is the state? I can't remember. There, I just read about it. There's a state that is seeking to pass a law that uh, abortion is illegal at 15 weeks because that's when nerve endings develop in the fetus and they're able to, uh, to, to feel pain. Uh, but there, all along, there have been these attempts to limit abortion, okay? And they've been overruled consistently because of Roe versus Wade. But now laws can be passed. But you've got these two extremes. You've got states that are passing laws that would allow a child to be uh, left to die even after it's born and breathing. That is not an, uh, an extreme statement. That's happening. That is happening right now. And there are purported Christians who are supporting this nonsense. I'm sorry, you're wrong. That's evil. It's vile. It's wrong. I will stand up. You know what Christians were known for in the early days? Protecting these children. Rome was just like this. There was a, there was a hill or a, a, an area outside of Rome where babies were left to die. Many times if a child was born, it was deformed. Um, if the child was a, a female, because oftentimes they wanted a male and it was born a female, they just didn't take care of it. They just set it out there to die. That's what these laws in states like New York and California are permitting to have happen. Okay? If you're born, but you have certain handicaps and we don't want you, we'll just let you die. We're just not going not gonna to help you live, even though you're a breathing human being. Don't tell me you're a Christian if you're supporting this. Don't even begin to tell me that. I don't want to hear it. You're not listening to the word. In the early days... Christians were known for going to that place where they left those babies exposed to die and taking them in and caring for them. Wow. That's what Christians were known for. They were known for life. They were known for sexual ethics, not just going around and having sex whenever, wherever, with whoever. That's what we have happening today. Now, I hate getting into these sorts of things because I don't want you to think that I'm just a, a you know, a one idea preacher. But this is where the divide is happening right now. OK. Listen, you either believe the word of God or you don't. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. You don't get to reinvent Jesus. You don't get to make Jesus in your own image. You're made in God's image, not the other way around. You need to align your character 
with Christ's character, not the other way around, right? So um, it is unbelief that is the veil, okay? And that, that veil of unbelief can be these values from the culture, right? That cause someone to turn inward and say, well, I don't know and what do I feel? And, and you may see examples. You may have people that you love who are transgender or gay or who have had abortions. Love these people, but don't tell them what they want to hear. You're not helping anybody by telling them what they want to hear. Okay? Neither are you helping them by condemning them. You help people to come to Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the key is in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, that veil is a veil of unbelief and it causes us to turn away from the word and turn towards self. And uh, we could call that pride if we wanted to. Um, Let's look at unbelief and pride. The root of all other sins is unbelief, according to um, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights, uh, American civil rights leader, but Martin Luther, whom he is named after, who started the Protestant Reformation. Luther likened unbelief to the breaking of the first commandment. What's the first commandment? As in the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay? That's the first commandment. You don't have any other gods before the only true God. Now, here's a quote from uh, Timothy Keller. Now, this is the work of the first commandment, which commands, thou shalt have no other gods, which means, since I alone am God, thou shalt place all thy confidence, trust, and faith in me alone and no one else. That's Tim Keller quoting Martin Luther. Now, Tim Keller says, so if the root of every sin is idolatry, idolatry is turning to another God, right? So the second commandment says, don't make any idols, but they're companions, right? You turn from the only true God to another God and the other God is a what? An idol, okay? So if the root of every sin is idolatry and idolatry is a failure to look to Jesus for our salvation and justification, then the root of every sin is a failure to believe the gospel message that Jesus and Jesus alone is our justification, righteousness, and redemption. And that comes from Timothy Keller's book, Center Church, and that's from on page 70. The veil between every human being and the truth of the gospel is unbelief. Every sin is a manifestation of that unbelief. However, when I turn away from God, I turn towards something else to replace that faith in God to replace him as my supreme value, the, the one that I worship, okay? And that's idolatry. Both St. Augustine and C.S. Lewis wrote that pride is the root of every other sin. However, this is simply stating the positive side of the same idea Luther presented. The negative is unbelief or turning away from God. So turning away from God, that's unbelief. Turning towards self, that's pride. You see how it's the same sin? Okay, two sides of the same coin. 
Idolatry may take many forms, of course, but it always comes down to the elevation of the object of my desire above God. That's why the scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. The reason why the fool says in his heart, there is no God, because I want to do what I want to do and have nobody looking over my shoulder, right? Um, Values are always based upon beliefs. The ultimate object of my faith is my highest value. The ultimate object of my faith is my highest value. And that becomes my God. Now, I might not call it a God. I might not bow the knee to it, but it's what takes up all of my, my energy, okay? My time, my thought life. Um, so for most people, that's self. Thinking about myself, what I want, what I desire, how I feel. So can you hear me is what Jesus said over and over again. He said, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me tonight? Do you hear the Lord tonight? This is another way of expressing the idea of the veil. Those with the veil of unbelief in place cannot hear. You're probably still not tuned in right now if you have that veil of unbelief. You're not paying attention. You're not even hearing me right now if you have that veil of unbelief. You've already turned away to something else. You're already paying attention to something else. If you can hear me right now, that's a good sign. Those with the veil of unbelief in place cannot hear. They're not paying attention. However, the the veil is removed when a person turns to Christ. So the key is not believing all of these different things in the Bible. The key is actually, honestly, entirely believing in Jesus. Jesus is the package deal. And he draws us into the word. Okay? So if you believe, you'll begin to hear. If you believe, you'll begin to see. Put your trust in Jesus. Last two verses. The Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's a good verse, by the way. I I put that on, I sent it out or put it online today. And we all with unveiled face, unlike Moses, we have an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So this idea of the Lord is the spirit is, this is a Trinitarian idea, right? Trinitarian, big theological word. God is one God, but three what? Right? Three persons. God is one God, but he manifests himself or expresses himself or discloses himself in three persons. Who were the three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we have this idea, the Lord is the Spirit. That is, Jesus is the Spirit. What? Wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. One God all interacting together in these different personal ways. So have you ever heard uh, a preacher like me say, accept Jesus in your heart, right? Let Jesus come into your heart. But it's actually the Holy Spirit who comes into you. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus into you. And when the disciples said, show us the Father and it will be enough for us, I think that was Philip that said that to Jesus in John 14, this, this slays me. 
Jesus looked at him and said, have I been with you so long and you've not come to know me? Whoa, whoa, whoa. The father is speaking directly through the son. Have I been with you so long and you have not come to know me? The father is in the son. The son is in the spirit. Okay? So when you have the Holy Spirit, you have the son and you have the father living in you. That's the person of the Trinity that comes into us. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God. Right? I like this from Romans 8, 9. The Apostle Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So now we have the Spirit connected to God, as in the Father, and connected to Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Now, there are denominations that say you accept Jesus in your heart and then later you get the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry. I disagree, respectfully. You may be more filled with the Holy Spirit at a later occasion. You can call that a baptism of the Holy Spirit if you want, but baptism just means immersion. Okay? We all need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Jesus. Conversely, if you do have the Holy Spirit, you do have Jesus and you do have the Father. With the Spirit of the Lord is there's freedom. When you feel bound, limited, condemned, you're not in the presence of God. When you live your life by religious rules, then you're seeking to relate to God through your own capabilities. Right? If you keep certain rules. When you sin, of course, you sense conviction. But then you confess your sin and you receive forgiveness. And then you have that sense of relief and freedom. And I call it a lightness in your being. Listen, the gospel is not law. It's not do and do not do. Do not drink. Do not smoke. Do not cuss. Do not dance. Do not gamble. Do not have sex. It is not you need to go to church and read your Bible and pray and tithe. Listen, all of these things are good. And they have their place. But that's not getting you anywhere near God. You can stop reading romance novels and start reading the Bible and it won't get you to heaven. Okay? You can stop going to the club on Saturday night and start going to church on Sunday morning and it's still not getting you into heaven. Now you go in the right direction. If you read the word, the word gives you the opportunity to have faith. You put faith in Jesus, you go to heaven. Go to church, hear the word of God preached and receive fellowship from other people, encourages your faith. Yes, these are all good things, but it's not the thing itself. We look at the thing itself and we assume, well, just hang on, Lord. What do I need to do? Just tell me what to do. Ten commandments, do these and you go to heaven. Listen, anybody in this room can keep the Ten Commandments. I'm sorry. You know, people just make it like it's so hard. It's really not hard. But see, when you keep those things in your heart, oh, now it gets hard. Okay? So it's not just a matter of do not commit adultery. I'm not married, so I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not about to have sex with someone else's wife. That's just, I'm sorry. That's just disgusting. To me, that's just disgusting. I can't, I can't fathom that. It's not a temptation for me. I don't care how attractive that woman is. She's married to another man. That's not attractive to me at all. 
Bah. That doesn't mean that I'm not attracted to some single hot female working out at the gym where I work out. That's why I don't wear my glasses when I work out. I am just going to be honest with you. There's a lot of ladies there that have some very shapely figures, man. Hey, man, I can just stay in my own zone if I keep my... Y'all are just... You're like a Monet painting right now. You're just a blur. You're just a, And I know it's all ladies. You're a lovely blur. Okay? But it's like, you know, I'll be, you know, I'll be lifting. And, you know, here's some lady that's like, you know, eight feet from me who's lifting. And I'm like, please! And most of them are young and they're single. So I could justify that and say, well, I wouldn't be committing adultery. Yeah, see, but the standard is a lot higher than that, you see? Okay? Or do not murder. I'm not going to murder anybody. That's horrific. But Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've already gone down that path. Wow. Gosh, he sets the bar high, doesn't he? So I'm not trying to say... Don't do these things. Just live however you want to live. Freedom means doing whatever you want to do. No, freedom means living the life that God created you to live. When you live in accordance with your design and your nature and your your new nature in Christ, that's freedom. When you buck up against that, you may think you're exercising freedom, but that doesn't mean freedom to do whatever your flesh wants you to do. Your flesh is deceived. There's all sorts of people today and they're saying, well, I was made this way. I was created this way, you know, and it's a sinful way. And I would say it's a fallen world. Okay. But what you're going to find is what you're doing is not going to make you happy. Not in the long term. When we do God's will, it's going to make us joyful, fulfilled, happy. Uh, that means we're going to have to deny ourselves some things that our flesh wants. Your flesh wants all kinds of things that it shouldn't have, right? Um, so, in the end, this is about faith. The organ of perception for the spirit is faith, okay? Sometimes people, you say, well, I, I feel the Holy Spirit. No, you faith the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not feelings that come along with that. But the organ of perception is faith. And that comes as the result of the word. But just hear those last sentences there. When we look to Christ in faith with an unveiled face, then we're beholding his glory and we become increasingly transformed into the image of Christ. You become more and more like Jesus the more you behold him, the more you follow him, the more you become like him, right? So stop resisting, all right? Let him lead you. Let him transform you. That's what our whole life down here is about, becoming more like Jesus so we'll become ready to live with God forever in heaven. I hope all of you live to, you know, until you're 100, but as I was saying earlier, before we turn the, the broadcast on and the podcast on, we don't know when we're going to die. You know, uh, Judge Ken Starr just died at 74. I'm thinking I'm 60. That's 14 years from now. Woo. Some of you in this room might already be there. We don't know when we're going to go. 
Stop pretending like you're not going to go. Start letting Jesus transform you so you're ready to go. Amen? All right. God bless you. We'll see you next week for 2 Corinthians 4.